Have you heard some of the great insights from guests on Gangry the Podcast? Insights like... I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. I always ask myself with yeah, stories, and, and I, I had the same going question. through the Bokov's archives. It has a question mark in my Imagine head I'm on your shoulder and that you're wearing a GoPro. Here is uh, carefully and meticulously. Every single piece about the whole Bundy story was just so interesting. It was really weird one to write because every time I tried to outline... The story became a viral sensation, right? Like, it was the story. You cannot, you cannot do these stories or how we, uh, how we understand the world. They're how we share our experiences. Believe it or not, Gangry the Podcast is now in its ninth year. In all that time, the best narrative journalists have told us how they report and write their stories. You can still listen to every single episode. They're on our website, along with links to all of the stories and books that we've talked about. You can find it all at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Mirren Fader. Fader is a new staff writer for The Ringer. Before The Ringer, she spent four years writing for Bleacher Report's BR Mag. Her story, Devontae Adams is Peaking in Every Way Possible, was published by The Ringer on January 14th. The profile of the all-pro wide receiver for the Green Bay Packers was her first piece for The Ringer. The story goes deep behind the scenes of Adams' life. That's something that doesn't really happen often in profiles of star athletes. Vader spent a great deal of time with Adams, his wife, and his mother and came away with a story that shows exactly how the wide receiver has been impacted by becoming a father. He just had a daughter and he is really learning how to love her and is very influenced by his mother's love for him. So it is a story about uh, masculinity and um, opening up about those feelings and fears of parenthood and how that's just changed and shaped him as a man. So. Um, I really think the confidence and the, um, the incredible season that you're seeing from him is so much due to that uh, evolution off the field. At Fader's last year at Bleacher Report, she wrote two pieces about the heartbreaking deaths of two athletes. One of those stories was focused on Gigi Bryant, Kobe's daughter, who died in a helicopter crash one year ago. Fader said she learned so much about empathy in reporting those pieces. It's about being an empathetic person and then an empathetic reporter. Like empathy is empathy is what it's about. It's not I'm on your side. It's I hear you. I, I'm listening to you and I'm trying to understand you. Um, and I think you just have to give people the grace that you would want if you were, you know, talking about a deeply sensitive thing. Fader has been noted in Best American Sports Writing twice. She was also a finalist for the Dan Jenkins Medal in 2020. As usual, I've linked to all of the stories that we talk about on our website. You can find those links at www.gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast, Mirren. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, for starters, I would love to talk with you about your profile of Devontae Adams, uh, 
probably the best wide receiver in the NFL, and at least I was happy to have him on my fantasy football team this year. Uh, the story went live on the ringer on January 14th, uh, just before the divisional playoff games began. Um, uh, can you, can you tell me about that story? Yeah, the story obviously is about somebody who's very talented at football, but it is so much more about somebody who's evolving in so many different ways off the field. And I really want to show that the success that you see on the field is due to that maturation off the field. So, um, he just had a daughter and he is really learning how to love her and is very influenced by his mother's love for him. So it is a story about uh, masculinity and um, opening up about those feelings and fears of parenthood and how that's just changed and shaped him as a man. So um, I really think the confidence and the um, the incredible season that you're seeing from him is so much due to that uh, evolution off the field. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the piece. I have um, now a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old, so I've I've been through. <laughs> it's been a while, um, <laughs> but it was um, really great to be able to kind of um, relate in some ways to somebody who is like a amazing professional athlete. Yeah, I am so happy to hear you say that, and especially when I got feedback from you know other men who said similar things because. You know, we think that we have, we should have nothing in common with these people. They make millions of dollars. They're famous. We're not. Um, so many of us just live paycheck to paycheck. But these themes of love and um, emotion and really just humanity is, is really what I think is the beauty of long-form storytelling. You know, you might not be able to relate to Devante in any other way, but you know what it's like to have um, a daughter and be so overcome with awe and excitement and fear that something could happen to this person, this little human that you love so much. So, um, I think it's really cool that people were able to see themselves in the story. Yeah, uh, I definitely, um, can you talk about how the piece came about? Yeah, I obviously Devontae was having a great season. Um, I had profiled him a couple years back, um, back when I was at Bleacher Report. So kind of kept in touch a little bit there. And, you know, I just thought it would be a good idea to revisit him. I think you, you want to revisit somebody in a profile when something dramatic has changed in their life. You know, you're not just profiling them again for the sake of it. Um, and I think the having a daughter – and knowing how close he is with his mom, I was really curious how those two relationships sort of went together. Um, so that's how it kind of started. Yeah, did you did you know going in that it was really going to center around fatherhood, or is that something you like started to realize uh, the more that you talked with him? I didn't know. I think that's the thing with you know long form writing is like you have a sense of a couple things you're curious about. You know that curiosity is probably one of your biggest tools as a long form reporter, but you don't really know until you sit down and talk with him. And I think with him, you know he's so used to people asking, "So what's it like playing with Aaron Rodgers?" And I, the joke <laughs> of our interview was like, "I forgot to ask about Aaron Rodgers." <laughs> it was like two hours in, I was like, "Oh shoot, where's the inevitable Aaron Rodgers question?" You know, because he was just talking so much about his daughter, and so I think you just get your cues from your subject. You know, that's who he wanted to talk about. Um, you know, because I asked him, I was like, "What is the one thing that keeps you up at night? Like, what is the one thing that's ticking at you?" Um, you know, you're, you're with Jordan brand, you have all these things you've dreamed of, you're a superstar now, but like, what, what ticks at you? 
and he just talked about his daughter. So I think that um, that's the exciting part about this genre is that you never know what the story is going to be. Um, but if you're open, um, it will it will unfold on its own. Yeah, you know, I've I've. I was going to say I've done profiles on professional athletes before, but maybe only one or two. Um, I, I wrote about Kyrie Irving when he was a rookie for Cleveland Magazine, and I had to write basically a 2,000-word profile, but I had 15 minutes, you know what I mean, to, to interview them. So, I, so I was, as I'm reading the piece, your piece, I'm wondering, you know, how much access, how much time did you have with him, um, and how much time in general did you spend reporting uh, on this piece? Yeah, I it's so crazy because that that 15 minutes that you're talking about, I always joke to people. So my job is how can I get to their soul in 15 minutes, right. um, which is a joke, right? You can't you can't get to somebody's soul in 15 minutes. So I've been on that end of the coin, too. But this was different. I had several hours with him. Um, and a couple years ago, I, I went to his home and I spent like the day with him and his wife. So, um, you know, I couldn't do that this time because of covid. But Definitely um, hours and, and follow-up phone calls and stuff. Um, you know, I think that the industry is in a place where that type of access is very rare. So I've definitely been on like, you know, I've had other profiles last year where I had 10 minutes with somebody. So it's kind of the luck of the draw. You never know. But um, as far as working on this story, I probably wrote it in a week um i was working on another story too and they were both due before christmas so it was kind of a time crunch there um sometimes you know you have to pull a story together in two days sometimes you have six six months um that's the part of long form writing people don't understand it's you're not um you know you're not just like typing in your in your room like uh whimsically or taking your sweet time, you know, you have a lot of deadlines and you're working on several at one time just because you know how long it takes to produce one. Yeah. Yeah. So did you talk, what was, did you talk with him solely on the phone for the story? It was on zoom. Okay. Yeah. What was that like? I'm curious. I'm, you know, I'm especially in this age of COVID. Um, and I've talked with some other reporters, uh, about, you know, how, do you get the some of the details that you need if you if you want to build a scene, right? How do you how do you do that when you can't kind of be the fly on the wall type of thing? Yeah, I was really worried at the beginning of uh, the pandemic. How would this affect my work? Because so much of my work is like flying to wherever and noticing little details like how did his eyelash curl when he talked about this? Was he looking you know fidgety or you know those are things that are important. But I think, um, you know, it's funny that this interview was over Zoom because I've done most of my interviews during the pandemic over the phone because I've found that athletes open up more when they don't have to show their face. I don't know what it's like. I think maybe they're just with the Zoom, they're Zoomed out. They don't, you know, there's a stiffness to it. I have to be presentable. Um, so I found that the phone call works much better, but he wanted to do a Zoom. And I think because I had you know, spent time with him in a previous profile, there was already that connection. But as far as how do you do it in a general sense, I think you can use the pandemic as almost an excuse to paint the scene. Like I have often said in a couple of other story interviews last year during the height of the pandemic, man, I wish I was here with you right now so I could describe 
whatever. Can you paint the picture for me as if I was there? It's almost like you can use it as a crutch to get them to like visually explain something to you and get those like little details that you need. Yeah. Um, what kind, what, what type of questions do you ask? I know you have, um, there's, there's, um, kind of a mini scene. There are many, many scenes throughout the story, right? Uh, and, and there's the one part where there are some bits of dialogue from a few years ago. Um, you know, when he's in the car, right after one of his worst games, I think it was a Thanksgiving game. Right. Um, yeah. and, uh, I'm, I'm just curious how you interview in order to get like specific type of information, like, like, uh, he got home and didn't eat the turkey and got up and went to his room and shut the door. Do you know what I mean? What type, what type? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's, I always say like the first rule of sports writing is you can't be afraid to look stupid. And by looking stupid, I mean, I think there's a hesitancy, at least there was for me when I was a bit younger of like, if I ask this follow-up question, if I ask what he was eating, if I ask the color of car of the car, is he going to think I'm weird? And you just have to drop that. Is he going to think I'm blank at the door? Cause you're going to miss out on a critical detail. So I think you get those details by asking questions such as, Okay, I have to ask, what kind of car were you in on Thanksgiving? Okay, so you came home, you said you were miserable. Like, how miserable? Did you cry? Did you shut the door? Did you, can you just, like, help me understand how low you felt? Um, and that's when he's like, you know, I love Thanksgiving, but I couldn't even eat. Um, what was the, What's the Thanksgiving meal you typically eat? You know, it's, right. it's not being afraid to ask and get that specificity. And you know, a lot of times people don't understand why we ask them. I've had a lot of athletes say, does it really matter? Why do you need to know that? And they're almost like, you know, oh, she's so weird. But, you know, I'd rather be called weird. <laughs> I'd rather be called weird than miss out on a critical detail. You know, you got to right. do what you got to do. Do you ever <laughs> do you ever go in and say, look, I'm going to ask some really weird questions. <laughs> so just bear with me because there's a reasoning. Do you ever do you ever say that up front? I never say that because I don't want them to feel nervous in any way. I actually, before every, before every interview, I always say, I'm just going to ask questions. I'm just trying to get to know you better. No pressure. I'm, I promise this is going to be the least painful thing of your day. You know, I always say something like that. And I think you want them to feel like they're having a conversation, not an interview capital I, you know, um, be, because if they, if they feel like you're really trying to get to know them, they're going to open up more. And that's why to the thing I said about Aaron Rodgers, I really don't even ask about the sport to like midway in. And I think that lets them know that I really do care about getting to know them as a person and writing a personal story. And it's not that the sport isn't in there. It is, you know, the entire second section of the Devante story was all about, you know, what makes him so great at football. But, you know, for me, I'm always like, oh, let's get beyond the football. Like, tell me about your mother, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and I think that's something that you don't see very often in, in some, some really good in, in profiles of athletes, right? You don't see that like yeah. off the field type of stuff. Yeah. I think we're moving towards a much more analytical age and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. I think there's like amazing writers that know the game and can understand the nuances and that's, totally cool but I think that there's room for everyone's type of writing you know I like you had Wright Thompson on your pod like I have grown up wanting to be like him I think I'll always want to be like him and I think 
when you said what you said about relating to Devonte, that's how I felt with Wright Thompson's story on Michael Jordan aging. Mm, right. Like when I, I used, I used to be a former basketball player and leaving basketball was so depressing for me and it was an identity crisis. And so I related to Wright Thompson's article, even though I should have nothing in common with Michael Jordan an iconic athlete. So I say all that to say like, you know, I wish there was more of that stuff in sports trading. It is kind of, I wouldn't say a lost um, art because there's so, I can name so many people that are so good at this that are doing it that motivate me, but it's definitely, I feel a shift um, in um, the beat writer and people like that being a bit more valued. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you one more question about reporting and then I'd love to talk about your writing process. Um, The lead of the story, literally, it makes the reader feel like they're right there kind of watching Devante play with his daughter. Right. Um, And the first thing I wondered was like, how how did you how did you get that? Was that um, was that now that you said you did it via Zoom? Was that something you saw via Zoom or, or had him him describe like you were talking about some other stuff? Yeah, I had him describe it. And that's the thing about sports writing. A lot of it is like recreating scenes where you weren't there. And it's what we just talked about, about pressing for details. Like I ended up asking him, like, how tall was the contraption that she was strapped into? What did it look like? What, you know, what's around? Or he said, oh, I had on some music. What music? Moana. You know, and you have to ask those questions to get it. But I think that particular scene, I think I was asking him about... um we when when we got past the like I love my daughter she motivates me type of conversation I said something like I think there although I'm not a parent I think there is a sense of when something is going so well and you're so in love with something there's always a fear of something bad happening to that person and that's when he got into his fears about what if he were to die or she were something were to happen to her and I said uh, something like when do you when do you think about that? And he was like, all the time. Sometimes I'm working out and I just, I think, what does she think of me? And I was like, can you think of a time you were working out recently where you, your thoughts were so consumed by her? And he, then he mentioned like, you know, this time uh, back in, I think it was April or something. And then I just asked him to describe the room, you know, okay, I'm, I'm not there. Can you tell me what it looks like? How far away is she from you? Was she looking at you? Were you looking at her? What were you have the, the italics in that section of, I can't fail. And so that's me literally asking him, like, what were you literally thinking? Cause you can't, obviously you can't make that up. You have to get exactly what they, their thoughts were. Um, and I like to do the italics. I feel like it, it brings you, the interior sense of what somebody's thinking. So that's how I did it. I, I, you can, like I said, you can use COVID as an excuse. Help me paint the scene. Yeah. Did you know, uh, as soon as you heard him, um, I'm trying to think in the writing process. Now you sit down, um, to, to start writing. Did you know immediately what, how you wanted to start the story? No, I wish I was better at that. I am somebody <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah, no. So do I. <laughs> so do uh, I. Yeah. <laughs> there are some people, you know, that are just like, oh, yeah, like I just, I write the story from, from beginning to end, one sitting. I'm like, what? Um, you know, I think my, my thoughts are always jumbled. I, what I know immediately is the images that stand out to me. And the one thing I took away from the interview that, 
I wasn't sure if it could be the lead or the ending was the image of him. Um, she was on his lap and she was like falling asleep on him. And that is something that he just cannot, that is his favorite thing in the world. And originally that was the ending. Um, but we ended up changing it and just moving it up. But yeah, I think, I think what stands out to me are just like, I think every story has a couple moments and the moments are what stays with you. And I think of course the lead was a moment, but I didn't know it was going to be the beginning of yeah. it. Did you, did you have it? Were you thinking in that set of, of sections, the, the way you had it basically running through uh, when you started writing, or is that also something that came through kind of just like the net, what seems, what can seem like the never ending draft work? <laughs> Yeah, I think it comes out of that draft work. I mean, I always tell people, like, as a long-form writer, writing is the least part of what you do. I think you spend the most time thinking. And thinking doesn't seem like work, but thinking is work. I have to, like, transcribe everything and look at the material in front of me and think. I always ask myself, what are my best images, um, like we just talked about? And then the second thing is, what is the story really about, right? Like, okay, it's about Devante, but it's really about masculinity, fatherhood, love, parenting, fear, all those things. Once I know that I can kind of come up with the structure, but I can't, I don't like know the structure until I ask myself those questions. And the structure changes a lot too. Like, um, you know, I can give a lot of credit to my new editor um, at the ringer, Matt Dollinger, because he smartly pointed out that, you know, we need to play up the Pam and Devante relationship a little bit more because it's very much connected to how Devante is able to be a father because he learned love from his mother. And so I was sort of like lurking there, but I, I didn't make it like so explicitly clear until he said that. So I think that really helped with the structure too. Is like, okay, I need to sort of like weave these two relationships together and the structure needs to convey that somehow. It's amazing how big of a role having a really good editor can make uh, when you're writing this type of work, I feel. Do you, would you agree? Oh my gosh, yes. And I'm somebody like I, when I think of Substack and I think of everything that's happening, um, and this is not a diss to Substack or anything, it just scares me like not being edited. Right. <laughs> I can't think of anything. I can't think of anything more terrifying. Like um, Matt did such a good job with this story, and I, um, you know, going from Bleacher Report to Ringer, I was really nervous. Like you know, what that would be like because I was so close with my editor at Bleacher Report, but I'm so happy with the editing at The Ringer. And I feel really sad for a lot of young writers who don't have that close relationship with an editor because I think the editor is the most least valued position in our industry. You know, it's for, for some reason, they're the first to go and they're the most essential part of, of how it's all made. Right. So when you're, when you're going to work on a piece, what do you prefer to do, the reporting or the writing? Um, it's, it's equal for me, you know, and I never really realized that until I got really into my career at Bleacher Report. Like I get such joy out of the connection that you make reporting with an athlete and that feeling of being on, they feel understood or seen, or you get them, or there's this, this connection that happens. It's, it's so amazing. I always call it reporters high. It's just like runners high. I feel that amp. Writing is hard <laughs> <Yes>. and, <laughs> you know, and sometimes I'm just 
was like, wow, this is so bad. I don't think this is English. And, you know, you're just looking at your story and you're just like, oh, my God, what language is this even in? But I love it. It's I can't explain it. It's It brings me such joy. It's the one thing I can do where I feel alive. I know it sounds so corny, but I just love the feeling of of writing, even though it's so painful and it can be so frustrating. So I think I love them equally. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. I've been talking with Mirren Fader about her story. Devante Adams is peaking in every way possible, which was published by The Ringer on January 14th. Uh, We're going to take a short break, uh, but I'll be back with more from Mirren very soon. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism Program at Fairfield University. The Bachelor of Arts degree in Digital Journalism is a rigorous 12-course program designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to take part in today's quickly changing media world. The podcast is also brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. The college grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. To learn more about the Digital Journalism Program and the College of Arts and Sciences, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangery the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm talking with Mirren Fader, who just had an excellent profile of Green Bay Packers wide receiver Devontae Adams published by The Ringer. Mirren, I, I think that was your first piece for The Ringer, or, or your first long-form piece um, after moving over from Bleacher Report. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, what, what, made, what, uh, what facilitated the jump? Well, we had um, layoffs, and they dismantled BR Mag, um, and I was a staff writer for BR Mag, so they let go of everyone except for me. So on the one hand, I was fortunate to still have a job there, but on the other hand, you know, my editor was included and uh, in those layoffs and literally everyone I worked with are editor in chief. So um, it's kind of like, it just wasn't, um, it just wasn't anything there for me anymore. And the writing on the wall is just so clear that, you know, they don't value writing anymore. And um, I tried to stick it out. I stayed for a couple months. I tried to lobby to get my editor rehired, but just wasn't getting any indication that, you know, this would happen. And, um, you know, it was just really emotional and sad. I, I loved the people that I worked with. I considered them genuinely my family, lifelong friends. Um, and so my agent was like, I think we need to start looking and uh, probably wouldn't have done that if he had not said that because, you know, change is is hard for me, and I loved Bleacher Report. That was the best job I ever had. I I just loved that place, and I would have been there forever if, you know, that didn't happen. So um, we started looking, and um, I told him, like, Ringer was pretty much the top of my list. Um, They're in Los Angeles. I'm in Los Angeles. So um, I interviewed at a couple places, but Ringer seemed like the best fit. So I was so relieved, so, so relieved um, 
and scared yeah, right. <laughs> to start over. But, you know, it's, it's, it's been awesome. Yeah. You got your start in newspapers, though. Is that correct? Yes, I know. It's, it's, thank God I'm not at a newspaper. I was right going to say, because yes. I spent 10 years <laughs> in newspapers. Um, and so, yes, absolutely. It's, it's, in some ways, it's so many magazines I feel like are going through the same process that, that newspapers went through. Yeah, it's the same. I always think, like, you know, it's the same song. It's the same soundtrack, different song. You know, all of these places, they they pivot away from writing, and then that doesn't work, and they're like, okay, we need to pivot back. And just, like, I just wish everyone would see it's not no writing or all the writing. It's writing is one part of what you need to have. You also need to have video and audio. It, you know, I think the, the places that are succeeding have a little bit of everything. Um, and, it, and it pains me when people think that, like, cutting writing is the answer it's never been the answer um but yeah i you know i i know what i just said about newspapers but i think like for me to spend the first four years of my career at a newspaper the orange county register that was the best thing ever for me i'm very glad i got that experience um before really the demise of local news because that's really where you learn to report and write And also just fall in love with the process, you know, like the only people that were reading my stories were grandmas of the kids I was profiling. (laughs) (laughs) And so, (laughs) you know, you have to just love what you do. It's not about like, I feel like a lot of people just kind of want the perks of being a media person, but not actually doing the work. And, you know, when you work for a newspaper, it's like, you have to really love it. So I'm thankful for that experience, but I'm very sad for what's happening with newspapers and magazines, like you said. Yeah, yeah. So when you were at Bleacher Report, um, well, actually just this year in Bleacher Report, you had two stories that I imagine were incredibly hard to report, especially emotionally. Um, And and those were the pieces on Tyler Skaggs, the uh, California Angels pitcher who uh, died of an accidental uh, overdose, and Gianna Bryant, who's Kobe's daughter, who died along with him and, and several others in the helicopter crash. Um, can, you, can you talk about what the reporting for those pieces was like and how you were able to deal with folks uh, who themselves were dealing with something traumatic? Yeah, those were probably the hardest two stories I've ever done. I think particularly the Gigi Bryant story, you know, the people that I, so I interviewed 30 people for that story. They were all in the midst of their grief. She had just died like a week before. So, you know, the Tyler Skaggs one, um, they had been grieving already for a year by the time I talked to them. So that's a completely different experience. Um, I would pick up the phone with Gigi's friends and coaches and they would just start crying. It's, it's hard, you know, as a reporter, when you just hear somebody crying and, you know, you have to be like, it's okay. I completely understand. Um, do you want me to call back later? Or, you know, I'm so sorry to barge in on your grief. This is the last thing you'd want to do. So I think it's all about, um, it's about being an empathetic person and then an empathetic reporter. Like empathy is, empathy is what it's about. It's not, I'm on your side. It's, I hear you. I I'm listening to you and I'm trying to understand you. Um, and I think you just have to give people the grace that you would want if you were, you know, talking about a deeply sensitive thing. Um, but I think it also comes down to intention. 
you know, why as a reporter are you trying to write these pieces? And I think with Gigi, I really wanted to give her her own, you know, space and article because she was always just a footnote in Kobe's story. Oh, yeah, he had a daughter. She loved UConn, WNBA, end of story. But I never felt like her story was valued or centered or appreciated. Tyler Skaggs, imagine living a whole life and, you know, you you have a wife, you have a, um, a career that you love, and, you know, you end up taking these drugs and dying, and the only thing you're remembered by is that Tyler Skaggs died at age, age whatever. And so humanity, again, was missing. So I think your intention as a reporter for these types of deeply traumatic pieces has to be, I want to show the humanity of this person. And um, so I think once your intentions are aligned and um, you're very understanding of the grief involved with your subjects, you're able to get to the core of these really, really tough feelings. Yeah. Well, I mean, what drew you to those two pieces? Uh, knowing, and, you, and obviously you knew going in, especially with the Gigi story, going in that it was going to be difficult. Yeah, I, I mean, so the beginning of the Gigi piece, if you remember, it's not even an anecdote. It's just riffing about what it is to love basketball as a young girl. And I think, like, that came straight from my diary because I wrote that after um, she died because, like, I had grown up in Los Angeles as well, playing basketball, falling in love with basketball. And I actually, there's so many people that I know in the girls' basketball community that ended up coaching Gigi and being around Gigi. And so it's this very eerie feeling of like understanding this very specific community that she was part of. And that drew me to it as well. And like I said, I, I was almost irritated by the coverage of Gigi. I was just like, she's so much more than a footnote. Like why, why does nobody, I, maybe it was people were scared. She's a minor. I definitely understand that. Um, in fact, I was going to, I pitched Gigi as a story before she died, and then we decided to not do it because we felt she was too young and didn't want to add that pressure on her career. So it's always, she's just kind of like always been lurking in my mind. But after she died, I, I had like a dream about her, and I don't usually remember my dreams, so that was really creepy. And I just thought like, I need to do this. Like something was just like, I need to do this. Tyler Skaggs, um, that took about nine months to secure the access. I, um, so being at the Orange County Register, like obviously I was familiar with the Angels all those years. And the guy that ended up giving him drugs, I had corresponded with him once while I was a young reporter at the OC Register. And so I was just in disbelief that this happened, you know, like I, I had interacted with these people. And so um, just from a local standpoint, I was just like, I really want to do this story. And again, I was so bothered by just the TMZ kind of coverage of him, dead, overdosed, and people were saying such horrific things. And I just, I felt really sad. I felt really sad that that was his legacy. And I, I just wanted to find out who, who he was as a person. Yeah. I know uh, you're also now working on uh, your first book, uh, Giannis, and I probably pronounced that incorrectly, and my uh, 16-year-old son would hit me if he heard me say it. Um, <laughs> the Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP. Um, obviously, the book will be about Giannis Adedekumbo. I think I can say his last name right, but not his first name. Yeah. Um, the book comes out in August of 2020. 20- 
21. Can you, can you talk about um, uh, what this book is going to be about? Yes, it, I'm really excited. Um, I'm almost done. Uh, I can see the finish line. <laughs> um, yeah, no. <laughs> um, it, I wrote a story for Bleacher Report last year on uh, Giannis and his youngest brother, Alex, and it was very much um, a human story about the more vulnerable sides of Giannis, the, the part that you know just really cares about his brothers and uh, the death of their father and just all of these things that has um, made him into this very caring person. Um, and so the book kind of is based from that story. It, it's, it's a straight biography. It starts at childhood till now. But what you see is going to be very much like my stories is that the human parts are going to be highlighted, the mentorship of brothers, the um, more vulnerable sides of him that people don't know from his childhood, things that have happened back then. Um, I think people know the basic thing, like, yeah, he sold trinkets on the street, but they don't know pretty much anything else. Um, so I've gone deep, deep in the reporting of Greek people. Thank God for the WhatsApp app. Um, cause I couldn't go to Greece because of COVID. Um, so it's, you know, fortunately got a lot of people to talk over the phone. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited. And I think, uh, Bucks fans in particular will, will enjoy it because I talked to a lot of Bucks fans about, um, the rise of the Bucks, which is a concurrent theme, uh, in the book for sure, because that so matches with Giannis's rise. So I'm so excited. Um, I hope people love it. Uh, yeah, we're almost there. I can't believe it, honestly. <laughs> so are you um, are you finishing up the writing or is the writing done and you're in revisions at this point in time? Um, where are you at? I have written 90,000 words oh, and man. I've done over 200. <laughs> That's a lot <laughs> of words. Over... <laughs> I know. Oh, my gosh. I know. I've never written this much in my life. That would normally be like a year's worth of of uh, magazine feature writing but mm-hmm. um yeah i've interviewed over 200 people i'm finishing up the reporting i probably have like 15 more interviews um just depending on who calls me back but you know how that goes and um yeah i i'm writing my last chapter that's due this week um my publisher has me do 20,000 words a month and it's like due but of course it's not the final version um so then i have to go back and i want to rewrite things because i've learned so much since I first turned in some of the earlier drafts. So I'm kind of at that stage where like, I'm going to be rewriting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. I have, a, I have about a month left. Yeah. So. I, I, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I would imagine, you know, when you first signed the contract that you're probably thinking, considering you've done long form pieces that maybe are 10,000 words or, or, you know, even a little bit longer, but now you have a book contract and you're like, Oh my gosh, what do I do? <laughs> where do I start? <laughs> yeah. where, is that how you felt? <laughs> Yes. Uh, and I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this podcast, but I think I sat down. You absolutely can. And I, was, <laughs> I sat down my first few days and I was like, okay, what the fuck do I do? <laughs> I just sat there and I was just like, okay, so like, what do we do? Because I think, you know, it's, it's a different, it's the same language as long form writing, but it's a different dialect. So it's, it's like the same, but it's completely new, you know, like in long form writing, you think about pacing a lot. You think about like, 
you know, uh, ending a section before an ellipsis, how can I make the person want to keep reading? A book is that on steroids. It's like, how can I sustain attention for 300 plus pages, right? Like, where, where do I put certain anecdotes? And, you know, obviously, when you're doing a nonfiction book, you have to report it before you can even write it. And this was the first time that I was like, doing both at the same time, which is sort of, you know, not my process. So, I think the whole thing has been a learning experience, but um, it's also made me realize I definitely want to do multiple books. I It's so stressful, but I love it. So I think it's been really a, like a trial by fire to kind of just, you know, you're almost like teaching yourself. I think the first time I ever wrote a feature for the Orange County Register, I was like, okay, I have no idea. Like, what do I do? And I think that was like this, you know, and you don't know, you don't, you just don't know until you do it. You just have to try and figure out what works. Yeah. Well, Maren, I'm looking forward to reading the book when it comes out. Good luck on getting it finished and and on everything else that you're working on. Um, (laughs) But uh, in in the meantime, thank you uh, so much for joining the podcast. It's it's been so great talking with you. Yeah, thank you so much. This was great. That was a conversation I had with Mirren Fader. Fader's a staff writer at The Ringer, which recently published her profile on Green Bay Packers wide receiver Devontae Adams. The story is headlined, Devontae Adams is peaking in every way possible. As usual... I've linked to all of the stories that we talked about on the website. You can find those links at www.gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry, that's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by Fairfield University's digital journalism and sports media programs, both housed in the College of Arts and Sciences. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.